Well, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. And uh, let's study this text that we're going to be in this morning. Verses 9 through 21 is a section we're studying. And the focus of it this morning is the family life. In a sense, we're talking about the construction of the church as the church being built up and really how it's being built up. I was thinking about this very text and I was telling my wife this morning, it's a perfect text, I think all of Romans chapter 12, for a man to, to preach as a, in a, in a uh, candidating situation, going to a new church, because it really lays out all of chapter 12 all that there is, really, I believe, for the church to be functioning. And so we give our attention here. This morning we're going to focus on verses 10 through 12. Let me read this section that we're going to study, starting in verse 10. And I'm going to end, actually, in verse 13. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. And he ends really what that is going to be where we're going to end. This morning we'll, I think, just get through verse 12. Ask people on the street what a church looks like and you're bound to hear things like this. Well, you know what I think of a church? I think of an ornate building. I think of people full of, a, a building full of people who dress nice, maybe talk a little funny. Very serious, extreme kind of people and someone might even say full of hypocrites. As though that's not them. Ask people in common churches the same question, and you might hear this, a little different slant. You know, when I think of church, they might say, I think of fun times. I think of social times. I think of uh, meeting needs and programs that meet people where they're at and full of people who are real tolerant and nice and going to lots of meetings and being involved. But I ask this question, beloved. Does our Lord want it to look like that? And what does our Lord want it to look like then if that's not what a church should look like? Maybe say it a different way. You could ask the question this way. What do people do in a church? What is it that our Lord wants us to do? If we're saying that it's not exactly as the world says it, and it's not exactly as the common church of today would say that a church is to be like, what is it to look like? What is it? I mean, when, when, when our feet begin moving and our hands begin serving, and we're actually doing things, what do we do? What does it look like? The answer to that question is Romans 12, 9 through 21. It really is. And as I said to you, it's almost as though he rapid fires this deal here. Just kind of bam, 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 bam. And it it's, appears as though he's just shifting on a whim. Uh, and almost 
like some of these thoughts are random. But I want to show you there is connection. It's all about what the people do in the church. All about how the church is constructed. How it gets where our Lord wants it to go. You do understand that our Lord has a blueprint. That's the reason why in Matthew 16, 18, he can say, I, Jesus said, will build my church, right? He's going to do it. This is his thing. And this is not about a, a bunch of uh, people getting together and saying, you know what, let's try and figure out what we want to do here. Well, what do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? Let's vote on it, you know? Uh, let's, let's, try and, let's, try, let's try and make you know, PowerPoint presentations and, and let's see which you know, looks the slickest and let's just see if we could figure this whole deal out, see? Well, I'm thankful, actually, that uh, we have a Lord, we have a Savior who has not only saved us, not only put us together, but He's showed us what to do. He's given us the blueprint. Just need to, we just need to follow it, don't we? We shouldn't be surprised, then, beloved, to see the Bible has a radically different answer than the world or the common church today. A different emphasis, a different focus, a different direction. And we need to give ourselves to it. Now what would be the mark that people in this church received, that the people, if, if the people in this church received the preaching of the word? What would be the mark of it? Would it be knowledge? Would it be more ministry started? Would it be that we would be well spoken of in the community? Would it be more people in the building, more money, more giving, more service, more books. If we actually receive the preaching of the word, what would happen to this church? Listen, it would be this. It would be that they live what the preacher preaches, right? That they live it out. Just live it out. And in a sense, it's quite simple, right? And our Lord has made it that way. Let me say it a different way. Christianity is a way of living. It's very important to think of it that way. It's a life defined by, you can say, a principle. It's principle living. It's, it's a life, it's a pattern, if you will. It's a life that's defined by an outline, by a boundary, by boundaries. And so, it's, we should look at it that way. We should be asking ourselves, what are the principles that you are guided by, that you live by, that hold you down, that tie you down? We're not like those balloons that just kind of go off, you know, and you wonder, where are they going? You ever do that? And we were driving up, uh, I forget, we were towards Oregon or something like that, and we were, you see all these balloons, and, you know, they're kind of just going everywhere, and you're wondering, where are they going? I don't know where they're going. I mean, obviously, they, hopefully, they have a clue as to where they're going in that. But, you know... We shouldn't be like those balloons that are just kind of free-flowing, just out there. We've got to be tied down. And the question is, what, what ties us down? What keeps us to this ground? It is a direction that is marked by a spirit-produced transformation. Spirit-produced. This is not about, again, you going, all right, now that I'm saved, Let's just kind of, you know, figure it out. 
It is the Lord who does this by his word and by means of the Holy Spirit changing you and I. What's that look like? Romans 12, 9 through 21. Now let's say it another way. Remember our theme verses here in Romans? Chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, right? And then in verse 17 he says, um, from faith to faith, you know, the righteous shall live by faith. What's a believer then look like? He says, to everyone who believes, what's a believer look like? What is a collection of those believers look like? What's a collection of justified people those, who, those that have that power that he spoke, speaks of in verse 16 of Romans 1, 16. Those that, that are, it says, by faith. Those who have the righteousness of Christ imputed to them. What do they look like? Answer, Romans 12, 9 through 21. I hope I'm building my case. I believe that's what's missing, beloved, in most American churches today. And what you see, and I mentioned this already before, and I come back to it, is they don't get the tie between theology and life. And so you have some churches that are theology churches, and some churches that are supposedly life churches, but the reality of those two, that if they don't meet hand in hand, they're neither. And you'll find those supposed theology churches actually going off on their theology. There's a crack somewhere. Go and read Revelation 2 of the church of Ephesus and see that when Paul, or excuse me, when, when our Lord Jesus through John says, look, you've got, you're doing so many things well and you understand theology in this area, but you have, you're completely mistaken about practical theology in the area of loving others and loving God. You missed it. How do they miss it? They didn't get the, they didn't get the tie between theology and life. There's a tie there. It's like the man who recently told me about his pastor. And this is a pastor that he had a, this pastor has been pastoring for 30 years. And this pastor told him, he, he said he, he, he didn't really see the need for theology. He didn't really see it. It's not that important, he said. So if there's one thing I've learned, he said, over my 30 years, it's just that I've seen that theology is really not that crucial. Not that big of a deal. He says what we need are people who live the life and don't squabble about all those doctrines that cause needless arguments. Ship without a rudder. I mean, where is that guy going, right? Not surprisingly, his church is also highly, highly mystical. It's not a surprise. You throw theology out and where are you going to go? Answer? Anywhere, anywhere, anywhere you want, right? all over the place. Anywhere but where the Lord wants you to be. He's saying then that you can have Christian life without, without the theology, without the doctrine, but that, that's impossible, beloved. And that's what Paul basically is saying in Romans. Listen, that's why he wrote it. He's trying to show us the connection between theology and life. And it's right here. We're at this hinge. And you know, if you get this hinge, trust me, you're going to get chapter 13, you're going to get chapter 14 and 15, and it's just going to flow, and you're going to understand it. See? But you've got to get this. 
He wrote it to show you and I the connection between theology and life. Now, just a few passages, and I want to show you this here. I want to deepen this thought here. Basic Bible understanding here. For example, listen to how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 7.1. Yes, Christianity is believed, but it's also due. Listen to this. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, watch this, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now, what's he, what's he, what's he get out there? You got two things here. Having these promises, he says, what promises? Well, it's the same kind of promises as Romans 1 through 11. The first 11 chapters of Romans. Same kind of promises. Same as the mercy, you know, chapter 12, verse 1, the mercies of God. Having the promise of salvation, the promise of full forgiveness of sins, the promise of eternal life, the promise of imputed righteousness, the promise of the Spirit, the promise of God's love, the promise of reconciliation. Having those promises, here's what the church does. What do you do with your life based on having those promises? This. You cleanse yourself from defilement. You perfect that flesh to live a holy life. It's what Brother Mike was reading for the, our communion here in Romans 6. You can, uh, you can offer your body, right? You can, don't let sin raise your, your mortal flesh. You can do that. And so this is a church that is bent on that. And you know what that looks like? Romans 12. See? That's Romans 12. And so here's the connection to the first 11 chapters of Romans. The pattern of life that, that verses 9 through 21 describes, listen, is the outflow of sanctification. It's the Christian life. In other words, that's what a Christian life looks like, see? So you say to yourself, what does a Christian look like when he's all out and about going? Romans 12, 9 through 21. One more passage to really help you see this. Turn to Titus 1. This is our study. This was our study this last week uh, in flocks. And listen, starting in verse 1. Paul, and he's, and he's writing, for the faith of those chosen of God. Who are those? Those are the elect, right? The elect. You say, who's the, what, the elect? What's that? How do we recognize the elect? For the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth. How do you, okay, you know how you recognize them? They're the ones that know the truth, right? Now we're not talking about just head knowledge here. Personal truth. Personally knowing, right, the Lord. It's a relationship. But it definitely means knowing the right facts, knowing the gospel. And so you, there's a knowledge of the truth. But watch this. Which is according to what? Godliness. And so here you have a knowledge of the truth. You know the gospel? What's that? Romans 1 through 11. And it's according to godliness. What's that? Chapter 12. And in particular, verses 9 through 21. There is the godliness, see? Now just so you know that that's exactly what Paul's uh, saying. Look at Titus chapter 2, verse 11. The grace of God has appeared, he says, bringing salvation to all men. Okay, Jesus came down. And what did he do? He brought salvation. He brought salvation to the chosen ones. This is what he said in John 6. He said, the Lord has given me some to be able to save. And so he brought salvation to the chosen ones. Those ones of chapter 1 verse 1. Now for time's sake, look at verse 14. Why did he come? Who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed 
He came to redeem us. Isn't that what we learn in chapters 1 through 11? Focuses on redemption. All those great words. But Paul's not done talking. Verse 14. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Here it comes. Zealous for good deeds. Again. Do we define these good deeds? No. Our Lord has given them to us right here in the Bible. Sell us for good deeds. And though that, that, I mean, that is verses 9 through 21. Those are the deeds. There they are. Zealous for those. Ze zealous for this very thing that he's saying. And so the point is, there is a critical connection of the gospel to how we live our life. And so the Lord redeems, he purifies. Now what do I do? You offer yourself to him. And that's 2 Corinthians 7, 1. Cleansing, the cleansing of the self there. And then what? Romans 9, 12, 9 through 21. That's our living. All right, let's get back to Romans 12. Let's build into our text here. Verses 3 through 8 basically say the Lord gifted you and he put you into a church to serve, okay? So here you are. You've offered yourself to him. He's put you into this church to serve. And, and you know, the, the reminder of that, there in your bulletin, the front part of your bulletin, is that verse there, Ephesians 2.19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. See how the Bible calls the church? What's the church there called? A household. What's that? Well, family. You've been put into a, into a family. See? household, intimacy, close, closeness, close together. Who are you going to use your gifts on? All these people in this household. And so then Paul lists all these duties of, of Christian living and what that tells me is that I just need to live my life and the giftedness part will just flow into that, see? I'm not so bent about, you know, well, what exactly is my gift? Look, just get about living verses 9 through 21, and I'm pretty sure you're going to recognize what your gifts are. Now this section looks like a large list of things to do, almost like a grocery list. We mentioned this last time. And it is a list. And, if, and, I, get, and I said to you before, it, it kind of looks at first random. But what I want to show you is it's not. There's a flow here. And Paul, as I said last time, what he's doing is he's working from the inside out. Always does that. And so the very first place he starts is you. And then it works out that way. And so you're going to have relationships, beloved, with people. And that is going to happen because you're not just going to sit here with your gifts and play cards, right? You're not going to do that. You're going to be out there and you're going to be serving people and you're going to be helping and... You're going, to, you're going to come into contact with people, right? And you're going to have to say something, aren't you? And you're going to have to do something, aren't you? You're going to have to, have to actually interact with people. You say, oh, I'm not a people person. Oh, yes, you are. The Lord saved you. You are. You, you were made. You were remade a people person. You get, you get that? You see all the... You know, as an unbeliever, you might have been fine being a hermit out there, you know, you know where Uncle Charlie is in the cave out there, way over there. But now, you know, it's not that way anymore, see. And so you've been re, you're born again. And so you're remade. You are a people person. And you're stuck next to that person. And it just amazes me. And I think to myself, you know, I, I don't, do you ever do this where you think of yourself as, uh, it's hard to think as an unbeliever because you just, your mind thinks differently now. But you think, wow, you know, I wouldn't have picked these, peop these people to hang out with as an unbeliever way back then. 
boy, I tell you what, the Lord knows. And he's put us all together. And you say, well, you guys share a lot of common interests? Uh, maybe not. But there is one. There is one. And it pervades and permeates our whole life, doesn't it? The Lord Jesus Christ. All right. So you're going to have these relationships. And here's what it should look like. Four different spheres, okay? Four different spheres you should look at. Your life as a Christian relationally. And the Lord designed His church to function in these four contexts. He, he constructs His church this way. What are the relational spheres that our Lord builds His church in? First of all, built in a personal arena. And we looked at that last time there in verse 9. You start with you. What's first? Notice, love. Love. In other words, check your heart. Make sure that you are who you say you are. That it's not a hypocritical love. Your devotion, your, 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 your love for others is true. It's the real deal. It's genuine. The motives are pure, right? And so three things have to be true about you. Pure love, real love, and then another one, we hate evil, don't we? We abhor it. We hate it. You start at that level, and I love it. It's not so much that you don't do evil. I mean, obviously, you don't want to do evil, but boy, I tell you what. It gives you the real, it goes to the deepest part, the heart motive, that you actually grow in a hatred of evil. Have you prayed that way? Have you prayed, Lord, make me hate this evil more? And so you commit that sin or whatever it is, and then you confess that sin. Don't just confess it. Go one step further and pray, Lord, give me a hatred for this. Make me to abhor that thing. See. And it'll change, by the way, the way you look at all sorts of things and the way you read your newspaper and the way you see news. It's going to change how you look. You just hate evil. Just hate it. By the way, you got to know what to hate, don't you? So how do you know what to hate? Scripture. Let Scripture define what evil is, okay? The, today's world is calling good evil and evil good, right? So you can't go by the world. Yeah, you know, like the Bible tell you what evil is. And so you hate it, right? And you cling to what is good. You, you hold on tight to it, just like, a, just like a, a spouse. That's the, the wording there. And so that's what our personal life looks like. And so you start with you. Now let's move out, secondly. Second point. Here's how the Lord's building his, building his church. And he's, you know, we're going to use these gifts. How are we going to use them? What's this going to look like? Well, it's going to be built in a personal arena. And it's going to be, this church is going to be raised up in a family atmosphere. Point number two. Here's our new point, and we're going to start this in verse 10. And as you move out, the next group is the church. And Paul is clear here. Listen, the church is a family. Oh, get ready, beloved. We're about to be blessed greatly, but I tell you what, we're also going to be challenged. Me too. There's some good stuff here. But some of, our, some of the things that we hold on to, some of our traditions, some of the things that are kind of, you know, sacred to us, I'm just warning you ahead of time here. They're going to be challenged. But blessed be the Lord. He's going to give you truth that is going to, is going to be um, fruitful and joy and good if you receive it. All right, now what are the marks of this family atmosphere? Let me give you, there are actually four marks. We're just going to see three this morning. First of all, proactive affection. Proactive affection. See, so why did you word it that way? Well, it's the best way I can understand verse 10. It just, that's what it is. It's proactive affection. Affection that is, 
that is not just waiting, that is not just sitting there, but it's, it's out there. You're, you're going to do something. All right, now watch how this works. See that first phrase? Look at it there, verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. And then he says, give preference to one another. Let's look at this first one here. Very rich set of words in the Greek. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. In fact, you know, if you translate it literally, it says, be lovingly loving to one another in brother type love. It does. Four different words that are always associated with love. And he just, just stockpiles them here, just, you know, love, be lovingly loving towards one another as you lovingly love one another. Right? It's kind of the idea. So, wow. Whoa. He, I think he wants us to love each other, right? Yeah. But I want to, and that's the, the, base, the basic of it. Four words here that, 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 that are usually used in relation to love. But I want to break this down here. The first word is the richest word here that I want to focus on in the Greek here. And it's the word philostorgos. Philostorgos. It's a compound word. Two words, philo, which means you know, warm affection or, or a love devotion. But watch this. And then storgos, which means family love. The love that you would have for a brother or sister or mother or father. It's, it's interesting. This word's used in 2 Timothy 3. And there, and I think it's verse 3 that says this. And there it's translated unloving. It says in the last days, men, people will be unloving. You know what that means? In the last days, people are not going to have a natural family affection for one another. Have we not seen that today, these days? The family's just completely disintegrating. People not even having a clue as how to love as a family. Sure. Family type of love. Natural love. And today it's all gone. But he says in the church, you have to have that. You have to have that. And so he has these words. And by the way, I was sharing with my family last night that it's amazing that... Uh, and I don't want to get caught up in the translations and all that kind of stuff here, because actually, I haven't really seen one translation that I would say really translates verses 10 through 13 great. Some have a good little phrase here, and that's good, and others a really good phrase here. So it's going to be a bit of a hodgepodge that way as we work our way through. But let me just tell you, I don't know that the NES does the best job of any of them, you know, here in verses 10 through 13. So I might be helping you to see this, in, but, you know, it's not always easy to translate, all right? So sometimes the, 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 with the Greek, you know, you, you have these words, and, and I know these translators did their best, and I can understand kind of where they're coming from. But I'm going to kind of point that out to you. So what we're talking about here is an intensified kind of love, a family love. And that's the idea when he says there, you know, be devoted. And again, this, there's not a verb here, by the way. He's just stating it out. And, and it, you could even say it in, in, you could say it this way, in family love, in a family type of love, give yourself to brotherly love. See, you could say it that way. And even that word give is not really in there. Love each other like a family. The church is supposed to be marked by that kind of love. You know, you know why I always talk about the church now being a family? See? Because it is. It is. A brotherly kind of love. A family kind of love. It says, he says it two different ways. And I have to tell you, beloved. When you start to look at the church like a family, 
It changes things, doesn't it? It changes it. You know, you, you can't just sit next to the, the person that you're next to and go, Hi, ha, you know, I don't want to talk to you. You know, or just kind of, you are what you are, and I'll be what I am, and, you know, we'll be nice and shake each other's hands on, on the Lord's Day, and we'll be off to where we're going. Are you kidding me? It's your brother. That's your sister. The Lord says, if you're a believer, you've entered into a family. In fact, Galatians speaks of it as an adoption. Ephesians 1, as an adoption. You've been adopted. You know, brother, sister, changes things. So many people that are all backwards. See, So many people that uh, protect their time with relatives. They protect their time with associates from work. They protect their time with sons and daughters and fathers and mothers that aren't believers. Very little precious time to the saints, though. How's that work with what Scripture says? Be honest. I told you. It's not easy. Say, well, you know, you know, you see those slogans, family first, right? You see those around. And I love the fact that, you know, you got people that are trying to, you know, keep the family unit together and all that. That's a good thing. The Lord, I believe the Lord is honored by that. But you want to know what he's more honored with? Understanding that when you understand that the church is your family. Spiritual family has a higher place in God's eyes than the physical family. In the physical family. You know, we, we love to be together as a family and it's very important. But you want to know why we're raising our children? It's not so that someday they, you know, we can be this tight-knit family that goes out camping and hunting together and we're, we do everything together and we're just, you know, it's just, you know, we're just this family. It's because we want our children to know the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we can turn them over to the true family. That's why. This is the true family. We're, we're your family, not them. Now you know why Jesus said what he said in Matthew 18, see to it that you don't despise one of these little ones. You know, when he says little ones there, it's, so, it's such a precious way of talking. When he says little ones, he's talking about the church. Some people take that way out of context there in Matthew 18. And they, use, they, they use it as a passage to, you know, talk about uh, children's ministry and all that kind of stuff. He's not talking about the little ninos, okay? He's talking about looking at people in your church like children. It's family. Family way of talking here. And even more tender, really, when he says that. And he says, don't despise them. Don't despise any of the little ones. And you know, what he's saying there, a real fascinating word is, it, it literally means don't look down or think down. Think very little of people in the church. Don't ever do that. Don't think little of people in the church. And then verses 4 and 5, whoever receives one such child in my name, Matthew 18, Jesus says, receives me. See, you know, you receive one another here. You receive them preciously and tenderly. You're receiving them like, like you're receiving Jesus. You are. They are new creatures. And you're, you know, the reason why is because we see each other like serving children is because they're born again. And when you pour out love to the family, you are pouring out love to Christ is what he's saying. Paul said in Galatians 6.10, a very uh, favorite verse of mine here, do good to all men, 
especially to those who are of the household of faith. What's that mean? That means be kind to everybody, no doubt. Love the people in the world, but give special attention to whom? Take a look around, right here. The people of the household of the faith. Oh, I love it. And I've told you this before. I don't have a problem, you know, those people that call around and they have needs and needs in the community and they want you to give and everything and give this and give that and here, you know, clothes or food or whatever it is that you have. That's wonderful. I mean, give as you can give. But you know what? For me, I always think family first. I always think, you know, is there anybody in the body that needs, that has a need? Is there anybody here that I can take care of? See? I want to do that because that's our Lord's heart. And so there is this special attention to your spiritual family, see. By the way, can I just encourage you as the body of Christ? I see this kind of love all the time. I do. And I just count myself blessed to be a part of this church body. I mean, I believe, when unbelievers come here for the first time, it's one of the first things that they see is a family love to one another. And I think it must look odd, you know, when you... Maybe some of you can remember way back when the Lord was you know, saving you. You know, you, you know I think it's kind of odd to say, so, well, uh, ring, ring, hey, uh, come on over. Well, why? Just want to hang out with you. Just want to be together. All right, what are we going to do? Enjoy one another's fellowship. We're going to maybe play a game or something. Is that it? Yeah. No strings? No? Trying to sell me anything? No? You want anything from me? No. I just want to be with you. Let's just be together. Well, that's odd. Not really. I've been missing you all week. And I, I just have to be with you. You feel the same about me? Well, sure, in Christ I know you do. Because we're family. That's just how it is. And I've seen it. So, you know, I, I love the fact that I just, you know, I hear of people that are in our church body in, in, in one of those homes, and it's great encouragement. Now, there's, take a look here again. There's another word that you have to see, and it's the word brotherly love. It's the word Philadelphia. You heard that word before? Sure. You know, they have that little bell there, and it's got a little cracking and everything, and that's always a little mark there. But it's, if that'll help you remember this word, but it's love, it's brotherly love. Brotherly love. That always makes me laugh. To a little side note here that, you know, say, I know this is my sports, you know, coming out in me here that have such a, you know, a background that way. But, you know, you, you ever watch sports and uh, the city of Philadelphia is known for, uh, in sports, throwing things at, you know, onto the field and everything. So I always say, yeah, there it is. The city of brotherly love, right? Boo. You know, so throwing it. Oh, what a contrast. But you know, in the church, it's not to be like that, right? And I think sometimes we can be like that. You know, we've become that, you know, boo, as we're throwing things at people, you know. I mean, you know, I don't like you, you know. Boy, I tell you, the Lord has not made us that way. He has redeemed us and put all this together so that we can see this, what kind of atmosphere the church should be like. It's a warm affection for believers, I mean, you look at them like real brothers and sisters, great concern, and you know all of this flows from your love of Jesus Christ. Listen to 1 John 5, 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of Him. In other words, the mark of a new regenerated love for God is a love for the saints. 
a brotherly love, a family love. By the way, sometimes you'll hear this. Well, I love that brother or sister of Christ, but I don't have to like them. Right? You ever hear that one? You know what? Verses 9 and 10 go against that. Verse 9 is agape love. Verse 10 is phileo love. And that's the word for like. The Bible says, you don't, you know, it's not just, you don't just have to love them unconditionally. You have to like them. You got to like them. Learn to like them. Sure. You do. Good stuff. Scripture speaks so much about this kind of atmosphere. You can, you can see illustrations of it all over. Acts 2, see what they're like, right? Acts 4, as they're just wanting to be with one another. 1 Thessalonians 4 9, when Paul says, You don't need to be taught about loving the brethren because God Himself teaches you to love one another. In other words, he says, At the rebirth, God puts that love in you. You say, Where did that come from? Romans 5 5. He says, In Romans 5 5, remember we've seen this verse already? The Holy Spirit poured out that love into your heart at salvation. But then he says in 1 Thessalonians 4.10, Excel still more. Love more. You've got to grow in it. It's because he's poured it into you, and now you have this new love. doesn't mean it just is perfected, right? That it's perfect. It needs to be perfected. So excel still more. Grow in it. All right, now I said a proactive affection. So look at the next phrase there, verse 10. Give preference, he says, to one another in honor. Fascinating way of saying it. So here we have the family part first. But now we're going to get the, to this... This uh, urgency here, if you will. So remember that the context is fam the family life. Listen to how the ESV puts it, though. And I think this is closer to the, uh, to the actual uh, words here. Outdo one another in honor. Outdo one another in honor. He said that sounds a whole lot like a competition. Well, no, it's not exactly like that. But it's a little like that. Just a little. I mean, it's not like we're in this race. Where you're looking over your shoulder going, ah, I got to that guy first. You know, I honored him first, right? It's not like that. But it is literally, this word give preference, literally means to lead before. To lead before. It's two words. It's a, the word for, uh, to, to, uh, is ago and pros, which in the Greek is, ago is a, a very general word for leadership. Leading people, you know, along the way and then pros before. It's a whole lot like, uh, you know, uh, if you could just picture the, you know those, you ever watch those parades where you see those bands and everything and you got the little major person, drum major, and they're out there and they're kind of, you know, all right? And they're going down and they're, and they're kind of, and they got the whole band that seems to know what they're doing and they're falling, they've, they've fallen in line and, they're, and this person is just leading them on. And I suppose if they, it would be interesting to see if they went right where everybody else in the parade went left and see if they would still follow. I'm sure they would because you've got to follow that drum major. But you know what? In, he, in this context, I know I have a weird mind here, don't I? But in this context here, he's saying you get out in front when it comes to honoring others. See, Parents, isn't this the thing that you find yourself confronting in the home all the time? Children that are wanting attention, wanting honor above the others? They don't want to do this. Let me give you an ouch. Where do you think they learned that from? <laughs> yeah, me too. I mean, how often are we working at, you know, outdoing the whole family to honor each one, in particular, the spouse? 
If your children are not respecting your spouse, it might be that you're not really showing that respect to your spouse, especially in front of them. Show that honor, right? Give that honor. All right, now what's this mean here? Let me give you a few thoughts here. First of all, when it says lead, I mean, this is proactive. You don't sit back and wait and let somebody else take care of it. You don't wait for another person to give attention to another brother or sister in Christ. And what he's saying is you be first. Don't wait. Don't sit there and say, well, I'm sure there's somebody that's encouraging that person. Don't sit there and say, I'm sure there's somebody that's recognized that person. And you don't need to wait for the church. This is, drives me crazy when I see churches that are like this. You, know, you don't need to wait for the church to you know, bring them up and you know, give the honor publicly. That's so cheap and easy. Public honor. You know what's a lot harder? In private, going to a person where nobody's going to know about it, where there's not going to be any recognition hardly at all to you. And it's just purely out of love that you're saying, look, and you're showing them honor. Appreciate you doing this. Thankful that you do this. I see the Lord working in your life this way. And so, you don't wait for another person to do that. Be first. But second, there's a humility in this love. And so you, you're, you're to rid yourself of all that is competitive. All that might make you jealous. You realize that's what keeps us from honoring others. A little jealousy. A little... A little Man, I, I'm not, I, I wanted what they have, and so I'm not going to be, I'm not going to go to them and put my arm around them and say, man, so encouraged that you are getting this honor, or that you're, you, you have this opportunity. See? Our hearts can be so filled with temptation and evil that way. Test yourself, beloved. How quick are you to recognize when another brother or sister has served? How quick? You don't need to blow the trumpet, but how about loving them for it, right? Do you thank others for a service done to you? Thank you. Thank you for watching my kids. Wow. That's a blessing. Thank you for, you know, cleaning this deal over here. Thank you. Wow. Real encouraged by seeing, you know, all that you're doing and serving in this class here. See? You see why this is proactive affection? You don't wait, do you? I mean, your love is out there and it leads in honoring others. But there's a second mark of this family atmosphere. Secondly, energetic labor. And again, you might think this, these are kind of funny titles, but they, they really match what, what's here in the text. And so... This is, this is what is a mark of this family. Energetic labor. Verse 11. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Now what Paul does here is he calls us to take a look at ourselves in the midst of our relationships with the body. So it's not, it is relationships, but you know how it is. When you're in, in the context of the relationship in the body of Christ, it's, you're always introspective as well of, as looking out. So you want to make sure that you're, you know, you're, you're the person that you need to be with that, with that other person. This is the kind of effort that you have to put into, these, into those relationships with the saints. 
And ask yourself this, is this the effort that you give toward others? Okay? First part, verse 11, not lagging behind in diligence. Again, really interesting phrase here. Um, it's, it's not translated well in the NAS, but see the word diligence? It's the Greek word spude, which means literally zeal, great passion, uh, great uh, desire, great, great strain to that effort. Great effort here. The King James Version, by the way, is worse than the NAS. It says, not slothful in business. In business? Where did you get business from, right? Um, I don't know, honestly. Watch this. You want to hear the literal way of, of translating this? Not lazy in zeal. That's what it says. If you just take it what it, what it literally says, not lazy in zeal. You could also translate it this way. Not lazy to be in haste. Not lazy to be in haste. In a sense, you know what he's saying? He's saying, get on with it. I want you to hurry. Hurry up. Hurry up. You ever do that with your kids? Hurry up. You're not doing it fast enough. Go, go, go. Right? Come on. That's what he's saying here. You say, ah, oh, I knew there had to be a Bible verse somewhere for that. He's saying, don't just sit around. Get on with it, right? On delay. That's the Spanish there. All right? I don't even know that. totally what that means here. I'm the, oh, I tell you what, I'm the, I'm the whitest Spanish person that I know. I don't know. You've got brothers and sisters just sitting there, and you haven't talked with them in a while, and you haven't served them, and you have no idea what's going on with them, don't wait. Get going. Right? That's what he's saying. He's saying, don't grow lazy in the work of service and relating to others to serve them. Galatians 6, 9, let us not lose heart in doing good. And he says, don't grow weary. Don't be weary in that. You know, we often turn to the Old Testament to see what, what that kind of work ethic was like, don't we? Sure. Like, for example, uh, Solomon had a few things to say to his son. He told his son of this in Ecclesiastes 9.10, Whatever your hand finds to do, verily do it with all your might. Right? You've got a job? How should you do it? With all your might. Work hard. Get to it quickly is the idea. Hurry up. Get to it, right? Here's another word for a son. Proverbs 18.9, He also who is slack in his work is brother to him who destroys, or like the King James Version says, to him who is a great waster. Your, your brother to him who is a great waster. See? Some years ago, a study was put together on the, the average American and how he... Uh, how he used his, his job that he was employed in. And the, uh, the average of eight, eight hour week, you know, or a day, excuse me, eight hours a day, 40 hours a week. And they found that uh, the results were that the, the, out of the eight hours, two of those hours were used productively. This was back then. It might be less now. It might be like 15 minutes or something like that. I don't know. I mean, but two of those hours were used productively. Imagine what can be done with eight, right? Now, I, I want to be careful here. I mean, this is not to say, you know, we're, we're not going to make, you know, working Nazis here. I mean, but he is saying, look, we resist hard work, don't we? I mean, so get on with working. Get to it. And you know, beloved, we place such low expectations on ourselves, don't we? 
when it comes to work and what we can accomplish? We shy away from doing hard things because it would require work, because it confronts our laziness. I was thinking of a, a man who uh, really exemplifies this drastic difference between people today and people of just a couple hundred years ago. David Farragut. He was the U.S. Navy's first admiral, and he was a hero in the, in the Civil War. Not many, though, are familiar with uh, this about David Farragut. He began his career at the age of 10 at the sea. You know, what's really fascinating about that is uh, he served with his father, and he was this, as a 10-year-old, a little naval cadet on the, this uh, ship called the Essex. By the age 12, his father gave him the responsibility to take a captured ship and all its crew back to the United States. Him, a 12-year-old. Can you imagine having that responsibility? All right, son, uh, we just captured this British ship. Take it back. By the way, these people have guns and they've been trained to kill. But take care of them. You know what to do. Can you imagine that? That'd be intense. By the way, guess who was one of the strongest... Navies back then. Who had one of the strongest navies back then? British. It's where we learned. It's where we learned our navy. Look at there, this history. It's late 1700s. He he was uh, not lazy in his zeal. He did not lag behind in zeal. We need to be like David Brainerd, who desired to burn out for the Lord in ministering to the Indians there on the East Coast. That's what he said. Here is David Brainerd, and he said this, knowing that he had tuberculosis, knowing that he was going to die. I'm going to die. I want to burn out in this ministry. Or like John Knox, who wanted to be spent to gain Scotland, he prayed this, Lord, give me Scotland or I die. The Lord has given us all areas and people to minister to. He, his call for then, then for us is, is don't slack in your zeal for it. This is self-discipline. Force yourself to make ministry and relationships with others in the body an effort, a work. Now Paul's not done describing this energy. Look at the next phrase, verse 11. He says, fervent in spirit. Great set of words. Some see this as the capital S, spirit. And so they would say that what Paul's doing is, is uh, rouse the Spirit in you, you know. Don't grieve Him, but stir Him up. Unleash the Holy Spirit in your life, some would say this is saying. And I think, you know, there's got to be a little bit of room for that kind of interpretation because it's hard to be dogmatic because in the Greek there's not like a capital S, lowercase s. But I don't think that's the best way of seeing it. Are you ready for what it says? Be at a boiling point in your spirit. Be at a boiling point. So, wow, that's strange. What? Again, you've got to see this in the flow of the context of what he's saying. What he's saying, great set of words here. Fervent spirit. What he's saying is be enthusiastic. Get your soul, get your heart excited about being around others and serving them and doing ministry. You get yourself excited. Don't be all, you know, crusty and, you know, hand in pocket and ho-hum 
I'll say this. Don't also fake a bubble, bubbly, you know. He's not saying have a bubbly personality. It's not what he's saying. He's saying there should be a real zest and joy in, in serving the Lord, in doing his ministry, in caring for others. So many of us have been jaded by shallow, emotional Christianity, and so we almost go around stoic-like in the church, don't we? You know? You know, just kind of little movements here, just kind of... I, I can be as guilty as any. It's almost become a sin to show emotion about the Lord or about a fellow brother or sister in Christ. And yet here he says, be enthusiastic. And what Paul's saying then is that it's easy to get worn down in service. It's easy to get tired. It's easy to be weary. And therefore, for, to have our kind of almost deflated in our, in our passion, deflated in our enthusiasm, inflated in, our, in the spirit of the, the fervor. But we need to stoke the fires of our heart, make it boil for the work. Remember Apollos in Acts 18? It says that he was instructed in the way and fervent in spirit, and he was excited to get out and preach. We need to be like that. We need to be like that. Okay, in case your zeal gets a bit misguided, Paul throws in there, end of verse 11, serving the Lord. Okay, look, you're not just all bubbly or excited or bouncing around about anything. It, should, it obviously should be within, you know, full of self-control. But he says, serving the Lord. Again, not the best translation, but it's tough to get the idea across. So I can understand why they said serving the Lord. Three basic words of Paul is used actually here in Romans 12 for service. The first one, you remember we saw in verse 1, and it was the word latruo, and, it, and it's, the, it's the word uh, for a kind of a, you could call it priestly service or a, a, a service of worship. The second word we saw was in verse 7, and that's that word diakonos. And, where, and that means kind of like a table waiter, or, you know, a waitress or waiter, you know, a, a, a servant that way. And it's a very general, practical way of talking about service. What he, the word he uses here is this word. Dul you o. Dul you o. I'll try to say it slowly for you so you can kind of get the idea. Dul you o. You know what it means? It's the word for slave. It's a, it's, it's a kind of service of a slave, a bond service. Total service to a master. Give yourself in slavery to the Lord would be probably be the best way to, 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 to say it. Slave yourself, if you're going to make it a verb. Slave, enslave yourself to Him. Let's put it together here now. He's saying that our relationships with others should be full of affection and we should work at it and there should be energy in that work, great passion, fire, and just boiling over joy in being the slave of the Lord Jesus Christ in serving others. See? And that helps, doesn't it? Because you know it's not just people that you're serving. It's the Lord himself you're serving. Paul started this letter exactly this way in Romans 1, verse 8. God whom I serve in my Spirit. All right, let me tie here into the last point and show you how this all works here as we come to a close.
And here you are, and you're in this church, and you have these saints, and you're seeing them as family, and that's wonderful. And you're spending time with them, and you're working hard at it, and there's great love, and there's great enthusiasm, and there's zeal, and it's a slave of Christ type of work. Guess what you're going to run into? Problems, aren't you? Troubles. Sure. Difficulties. And so the third mark of this family atmosphere, number three, faithfulness under pressure. Faithfulness under pressure. He says here, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. Just going to touch on these here. First, rejoicing in hope. Why does he mention hope? Because you pour yourself into serving others, and it gets tough, and you're tempted to give up, aren't you? You're tempted to slack. And you say to yourself, this is hard. I mean, people aren't easy, and you might even run into people that are against you for a time. And it will seem like an opposition to you. And so the question is, where's your hope? What do we learn in Romans 8? Heaven. The glory that awaits us. Christ in heaven. You know something, beloved? The enthusiasm goes, doesn't it? It goes up and down quite, quite often. The zeal gets dull after a while. And our Lord doesn't tell you to keep trying to whip it up. You know what he says? Rejoice in what? in the hope that you have. He doesn't say, oh, come on, whip up that, get excited. You know, we need another, you know, a little assembly here, a little, you know, gathering here to kind of motivate the troops. Not what he says. He says, you rejoice in the hope that you have. Sometimes, it comes right down to that. You can't get joy out of people, can you? You can't get joy out of circumstances, can you? Where, where are you going to get your joy out of? The hope that you have? Where's that hope? Heaven glory. The fact that he saved us for good. And that's good stuff. Great perspective from 1 Corinthians 15.58 Be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. You've got to add that little deal there. In the Lord. It's not in vain in the Lord. If you're doing this in the Lord and that's your whole motivation is for Him, whew, great joy to know that you, you can strip everything away, but I have Christ. I have the glory of heaven that awaits me. Good stuff. Another way of saying it is we serve because we know our future is secure. We know what's going to happen. 1 Peter 5 the, Peter's speaking to the elders there and he himself as an elder he says I've witnessed the sufferings of Christ and I partook of his glory in a little way and I'm calling you to shepherd these people do that service do that work with eagerness with zeal not to gain any kickbacks from the people don't lord, lord it over people be their examples watch this why? because the chief shepherd will appear and listen and you will receive the unfading crown of glory do it for that reason that's the hope. And we're called to rejoice in it. That's the blessed hope of Titus 2.13, right? You don't put your hope in some result from some service here in this church. You don't put your hope in that saint. You don't put your hope in that husband. You put it in the Lord and all that he is and all that he has promised to you. See? Now watch this next phrase. Persevering in tribulation means, means patiently staying under the pressures you know, beloved, ministry is pain, isn't it? It is. Serving people will be painful. You know, you, know, you don't tell people that, you know, 
Come. Become a Christian. Come to know Christ. Your life will be all bliss and, and no more problems. No, it really is calling people to Christ and inviting them to more problems, but understanding you're going to have a greater joy. You know, you're going to get rejected and you're going to fail. And sometimes just being around people is painful and you people have strong opinions and what should you do? You should stay under that pressure, right? That's what Paul says. All right, what's that lead to? Resources outside of yourself. Last one. Devoted to prayer. You ever, you ever wonder why all these trials and hard times come your way? Try this one. Maybe the Lord's trying to get you to pray. You ever wonder that? Maybe he just wants to have fellowship, communion with you. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this about prayer. It kind of defines prayer this way. A real fascinating way of, of looking at it. He says, by prayer, Paul means approaching the throne of grace. And then he says this. To pray means to go into the presence of God. To have a personal communion with Him. To draw nigh to God, James 4.8. And that is what Paul is talking about here. Be instant in prayer. Always keep in touch with Him. End quote. I love that. That's, that's it. Well, it's prayer. Always keep in touch with Him. Well, what's that mean? You're always seeking to be in His presence. He said, but I'm always in His presence because of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, but we're talking about enjoying the presence. Enjoying His presence. Later on he says, it's a feeling you want to keep near to Him. All right. Well, let me tie this all together. And let me use uh, John MacArthur's words here. He makes a very helpful statement about this last verse. He says this. One of the reasons the Lord keeps the pressure on is to keep us in communion with Him. If you don't spend time communing with the Lord, it may be because you're not under the pressure. And you may not be under the pressure because you're not in the service. And if you're in the service, maybe you're not doing it with great zeal and a fervent spirit. End quote. And I tell you, beloved, maybe we don't pray enough because we just aren't in people's lives. The more I am in people's lives, the more I have to pray about. Have you noticed that about yourself? All right, let's conclude this here. So you start in verse 9, and a Christian is one who's genuine, and he's one who hates evil, and he's one who clings to good, that which is good and, and who is affectionately warmed to other believers and pushes his own honor away to raise others up and is not lazy in his zeal but rouses his spirit and brings it to a boiling point to serve the Lord in and, and as a result is facing his tremendous pressure out there. Overcomes that pressure with joy in his future glory and he stays the course enduring all the while in prayer committing himself to the Lord's will. Does that sound like Christ, the Christian life? Sure it does, doesn't it? That's the Christian life. It's how it works. Now we're still not done. We have another point left here as it relates to the church. And we'll get to that next Lord's Day. Oh, what a blessing it is to have our Lord chart out for us our life. It's not guesswork. You don't have to wonder, what do I do? 
How do I live? What should it look like? He's shown us. He's told it to us. And we get to live this way in the context of family. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, you have uh, given us your truth here. We thank you for it, Father. It is a, a great blessing, Lord, to have our needs met by Christ. And Lord, it is a great blessing to have this course, this road charted for us by you, Lord, given to us. Father, I pray that you would, by your grace, uh, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, cause us to live this way, Lord. And may we start there and give ourselves as a sacrifice, Lord, to you. And, and may we be faithful, Father, to be the kind of person here and seeing the church as a family, Lord. Our affections for one another would increase, would grow. And even I, I find myself, Lord, growing in my affection with the saints as I pray. And, and I just pray that you would mark our church by these things. And we love you and we'll give you the glory in advance as you do this. Bless your name, Lord. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray.